Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Joshua Mitchell, who is professor of political theory at Georgetown University, author of many books, including Tocqueville in Arabia, as well as Pieces in First Things. His new book is American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Now, one of the first things that's going to strike people as they read the first few pages of the book is your alignment of three things that seem disparate. Identity politics, bipolarity, and addiction. We'll get into the, the specifics of those, but what led you to bring those three things together just in, in a broad sense. What happened was I, I wrote the section on identity politics and I thought, well, if we get rid of this, everything's going to be fine. And then I realized in some of the things I'd written earlier, in point of fact, there were additional problems. And so I thought, no, let's put together a book in which I address all three of the problems that I think we have. And so I think probably the most controversial part of the book will be the identity politics portion. But I stand by the other portions, too, as being incredibly important obstacles to the return to what I call the politics of liberal competence. We'll take those three in turn. These are three issues, and we all talk about identity politics. But again, I think one of the interesting things about the book is your attempt to pull some of the symptoms of identity politics deeper into some of these uh, individual maladies of, of addiction and bipolarity. But let's go back to the beginning, then. You have a nice quote from Tocqueville where you say the soul has needs that must be satisfied. And this introduces some religious language that, in fact, really is starting in your title, American Awakening. What kind of awakening do you have in mind here? As we all know, America has had a number of great awakenings. And when Tocqueville came at the end of the second great awakening in America, he observed that you have these people who are fixated on making money, on what I call the world of payment. And because whatever his religious convictions may have been, he understood that there is an angel in man. And the problem is that in the democratic age, he thought, because of this thing called middle-class anxiety, we would fixate on the material world. But he said that would never be enough because man has this twofold nature, this material nature, but also the spiritual nature. And he thought of this as a kind of elastic band problem, that the more you pull in one direction, the more there'll be this huge explosion in the other direction. And so he thought not that materialism was an obstacle, ultimately, to spiritual awakening, but that it would be its cause. And then with respect to the book I've written, one of the things I've, I've noted, and it's become more and more prominent even after the book in my own mind, and that is that there are, there are two worlds of payments. There's 
there's the world of economic transactions. And of course, many of our friends are saying, well, the world is great. Why are you all complaining? We have higher standards of living than we've ever had in the past. And yet there's still a bunch of gloom around. And what I concluded, and I'm not alone in concluding this, is that there's this other economy, what I call the invisible economy of transgression and debt. This is the deeper economy. And I present this from the Bible in the preface. I say, remember the story of Judas and the betrayal. He's upset because oil is poured upon Christ's feet and head. And he's upset because that money could have been used to feed the poor. And Jesus, of course, says, the poor will always be with you. And this is not a recommendation for rampant capitalism, of course. But what he's saying is that there's this other economy that's more important still. And, of course, Judas, Judas is quite upset about this. And he betrays Christ because he thinks that the only economy that matters is the visible economy of payment. And so he wanted to use the money for the oil to, to, to help the poor. There are numerous places in the Bible where this is the case. So there are always these two economies. And I think conservatives, frankly, have focused on the one, the, the world of payment, especially since the Reagan years, uh, with, uh, with market efficiency being one of the criteria for social policy. And yet uh, every Christian knows that there is, in fact, this other other economy, this economy of, of debt and transgression and guilt. And that's the one that has to be addressed as well. And in a funny way, even though I'm, I'm deeply critical of identity politics, I, I give it to the left. They understand that there's this other economy besides the moneyed economy, which is in part why it's so difficult for people on the left to talk to conservatives and vice versa. So for example, when, when AOC and the others propose a $50 trillion New Green Deal, what we have to understand is that they think that this other economy, whereby we redeem the world of its impurities, is more important than the economy of payment. That's why they don't care that the New Green Deal costs $50 trillion. They don't care that universal college education is unaffordable. They don't care that universal health care is unaffordable. They're looking at this other invisible economy which tries to reconcile debt and innocence, purity and stain. That's what they're doing. And very briefly, my argument is that one of the reasons why identity politics has emerged is because of the collapse of the mainline churches. The, the churches of Reinhold Niebuhr, the mainline churches, had always had a strong doctrine of original sin. Niebuhr tries to save that in the 40s, 50s and 60s. He admits at the end of his life he failed. And my argument is the collapse of the mainline churches did not spell the end of this fixation on transgression and stain. In fact, it migrated out into the political culture, and that's identity politics today. So the Pew polls tell us that we have a growing number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, in our culture who don't have any religious affiliation. And my response to that is you're, you're asking the wrong question and looking in the wrong place. They have a religion. They find it in identity politics. They're working through transgression and innocence as, as vehemently as Protestants did uh, in the early part of the 20th century or 19th century in their churches, but now they're working through it in political culture. You know, you have a great quotation from Tocqueville, it's on page 16, where, you know, Tocqueville, he almost sounds like Nietzsche talking, <laughs> you know, 60 years before Nietzsche, where Tocqueville talks about this society of, you know, the the, the visible payments, uh, really, as, as you put it. And Tocqueville, he says, do you desire poetry, renown, glory? But he goes on to say, if your object is not to create heroic virtues, but rather tranquil habits, if you would rather contemplate vices than crimes and prefer fewer transgressions at the cost of fewer splendid deeds, 
if in place of a brilliant society, you are content to live in one that is prosperous and so on, you say in your comment right after that, liberal thought does aim lower. Now, uh, when, when I read that, I thought, okay, is this why liberals are unable to contain identity politics? Because they can't rise to that deeper moral, spiritual, invisible payment layer. And we end up with a different religion. As you put it, the religious impulse, the soul's needs don't go away. They will find somewhere else to reach satisfaction. Tocqueville, yes, he admits, as so many liberals do, that the liberal aspiration aims lower. But he also recognizes that the human soul has many different domains. And, and he does think that there are deeper aspirations. There are religious aspirations. He says this beautifully in the section on the sources of poetic inspiration in the democratic age. But I would, I would push back just a little bit. Yes, in politics, he wants the, what I call the politics of competence. He wants us to build a world of well-being. Uh, but he also understands that there's this other piece of the puzzle, namely these religious longings. And in volume two, part three, he's, he's really adamant that we have to encourage these religious longings precisely because in the liberal world, things are going to get smaller and smaller. But in the section on the Puritans, which is in, in volume one, part one, he's very clear that the reason why America is successful is it's somehow able to separate these two domains. So there are these religious longings, and, and precisely because things are worked out morally in the religious domain, these Americans can have a liberal politics of competence, as I say. In other words, they're not trying to solve the religious problem in politics. And he says, the secret to democracy success is to be able to separate these in some measure. My argument is what's happened is that while we still have the separation of church and state uh, intact, we do not have the separation of politics and religion. In fact, the two have become commingled. And so we're trying to solve in politics, through identity politics anyway, the problem of that and transgression. And, and this is the reason why you've got one prime transgressor, the, the white heterosexual male. And really in identity politics, the, the political task is to listen to the voice of the innocents, to purge those who are transgressors. Those who have the political authority to speak are the innocent victims. And of course, there's an there's a elaborate intersectionality scale on the basis of which you establish exactly where you are on the grand hierarchy of victimhood. This is anathema to the liberal politics of competence. And I think the only way we can re recall our country's greatness is to focus on the competence of people, not on their identity status. And that's the game that the identity politics left is trying to play. And you cannot build a great country that way. You say at one point that politics in America has turned into, quote, a venue of sacrificial offering. What, what do you mean by that? At this point, there is one prime transgressor, and that's the white heterosexual male. And I say in that section and elsewhere, you know, please don't under, misunderstand me, reader. I am in no way defending the white heterosexual male. And I have a long section on, on the alt-right uh, later on in the book. But the task of politics now and the task of administrative, uh, university life, uh, all our organizations are really about silencing or, or purging the white heterosexual male with the view that once that happens, and here's the pathology of it, once that happens, the world's stains will be cleansed. This is an extraordinary claim. And of course, the Christian claim is that it's only the divine scapegoat who can take away the sins of the world. This is an amazing, amazing claim because it makes impossible 
group purgation. It's not by accident that with, with pagan wars, you have this group cathartic rage. And then when Augustine comes along, you can get a theory of just war. In other words, you can't go to war simply for cathartic rage because the understanding is a deep theological understanding is that man's problems are not solved by purging another mortal group. Only Christ can take upon himself the sins of the world. And under those circumstances, we can then look at other people and other groups, not as possible objects of cathartic rage, but as persons themselves. So I'm saying we're in this really, really twisted time where we've in effect turned back to the, the, the pagan understanding that we can purge groups. Now, I should be clear that the theodicy here requires that once one group is purged, you will have to find another because the innocents achieve their innocence by virtue of identifying an object of their cathartic rage. Well, if the white heterosexual male goes away, I think the next one is, is the white, white women, and that is beginning to happen. But the one after that is going to be the black heterosexual male. That's already happening to some extent, too. And, and that's the tragedy. And I have a great deal to say about race in America. Martin Luther King believed that you needed to have the family, you needed to have the Christian churches in order to solve the legacy of the wound of slavery. And so look at the irony of this. It, it turns out that these, the groups that identity politics are now setting up as, as the great innocent victims, the only way that they can be acknowledged and recognized and respected is if we get rid of heteronormativity, which is to say that the idea that men are men and women are women, uh, and, and that that's okay, and that the generative marriage is okay. Well, look at what this does then. It basically comes after the black churches, and it comes after the black conventional family. And so how can this be that the template of innocence, as I call it in the book, which is the civil rights movement in black America, gets extended farther and farther out? And, and my point is, black America really has more moral authority now than it did in the civil rights era. And what I mean by that is, it is only black Americans in America today who can call an end to this identity politics madness and say, no, it is not the case that civil rights goes to women's rights, goes to gay rights, goes to transgender rights. You can talk about those issues. Every liberal society is going to talk about those issues. But to pin it on the backs and to say that the template for this is the black civil rights movement. This is, I think, a terrible, terrible state. So I think only black Americans can, can put an end to this identity politics. Thing. You have a description of really this deeper psycho-emotional religious fervor when you describe an accusation of racism, when one person accuses another of racism, and often in some public form, and you say, the accuser beams with the iridescent light of discharged rage. The accused slinks into the darkness, shamed by the leprosy of his irredeemable stain. Now, there is no redemption for the one who's accused. Is this one of the big problems? Yeah. And another way to look at what I suggested in the whole book is, is actually through the lens of Nietzsche, who I think is whose diagnosis is, is very interesting in some ways correct, though I don't, don't adhere to his recommendations. But, but Nietzsche's claim was that, that we're going to go through a phase in the West where we retain the Christian categories, but not the Christian architecture. And I think that's where we are. So we have the idea of irredeemable stain, which is, of course, original sin, but we don't have the mechanism for forgiveness. And so I characterize this current moment as an American awakening without God and without forgiveness. Now, 
having said that, there, there actually is some way that one can atone. It's not a religious way. And I'm thinking here about the problem of Western Europe. So Western Europe has guilt too. It's over colonialism and two world wars. And these things are tied to actions of their nation. And, and yet there's no, no Christian way to have a tomorrow, if I may use that phrase, because on the Christian account, there's a sin, there's turning toward darkness, and thank God, quite literally, there is the prospect of being pulled back through forgiveness and atonement. But if you don't have that way of pulling back through forgiveness and atonement, you've got to find some other way. And, and the way in which I think Europeans are offered atonement and, and forgiveness is by renouncing the site at which the transgression occurred. That is to say, renouncing the nation. This is why the European project uh, is now a project which does offer forgiveness and atonement, but the cost of this is that you must renounce your nation. So there's no healthy way in order to have a nation by this account, which then I think invites very unhealthy ways. And, and this does bring us to the alt-right, and there are many alt-right movements in Europe, and there are some in America. I think Europe is actually going to be a much bigger problem. Uh, in the future. And here I, I would invoke Nietzsche as well. In the second essay of the genealogy, Nietzsche asked the question, how do we have a tomorrow? And his argument is the only way you can have a tomorrow is by forgetting. And my worry is that what identity politics does is it declares that the nation, that the family, that the churches, that the white heterosexual male and any number of others I think that will follow are irredeemably stained and it gives no way to have a tomorrow. And I think that drives people into the lap of the Nietzschean solution, which is, okay, if we can't have a tomorrow through forgiveness, we will have a tomorrow through forgetting. And the consequence of that is that Europeans, especially young men, are increasingly saying we have racial fatigue, we're tired of hearing about the regressions of our nation, we don't care anymore about colonialism, we don't care anymore about the Holocaust, and in America, we don't care about racism and, and slavery anymore. This is really an ugly prospect, which is growing more and more certain. And that's what identity politics doesn't understand. You can't, at the one hand, invoke Christian categories of guilt and transgression and reject the Christian alternative, because that really does invite this alt-right development that Nietzsche had endorsed. I mean, his view was the only way the West can renew itself is by completely getting rid of the Christian religion and its categories, meaning guilt, fault, transgression, innocence, the voiceless one, the marginalized one, all this language. This is inconceivable without Christianity. And his view was that you have to completely get rid of it in order to renew your civilization. And he did predict that we would be stuck. And so there are many followers of Nietzsche who say, see, this is what we get. We get the rot called identity politics. We get no forward movement, no development of competence. We only get the end of history bookkeeping, which declares some are innocent and some are stained. And that's the sole task of history. It's not competition with other nations. And so you can see how you're going to eventually get this cataclysmic reaction against this identity politics. And where I come in on this is I don't want to lose the Christian categories of guilt. I think these are incredibly important but I think they can only work within the Christian architecture as well. I think we still have to think about slavery. We still have to think about colonialism. We still have to think about the two world wars. We can't just walk away from them. And, and the agony of, of life and history is that we, we have to live with the transgressions 
and yet build anew through forgiveness and atonement. And it strikes me that that is not available to us right now, which is going to throw us in the lap of the Nietzschean alt-right. I think that your language of innocence, transgression, violation, and so on is, is exactly right, including the word heretics. Joshua, and you say at one point, the left's attitude toward heretics changed during the ascent of Obama. What, what happened there? I'm not sure the exact passage. I think, I think the, the language of, that you referenced, uh, the, the language of purity and stain during the Obama administration, I want to say reached its height, but I think it's still going on. I mean, Obama was a very interesting figure in that, you know, your Christian theology, you know, there's the one sufficient mediator. Yes, Christ is the one sufficient mediator. And in a funny way, Obama, the poetic truth of Obama was that he was the one sufficient mediator who would take away the sins of America. This is why I think people wept when he, uh, when he became the president, was that they, they imagined that the extraordinary burden of stain could be lifted by this mediator who's half black, half white. I think this is why Europe absolutely fell in love with him as well, Gave, offered him the, the Nobel Prize before he did anything. He was invested with such symbolic power. And, you know, I don't think he delivered. I think if he had, if he were to be president, he should have been president 20 years from now. That's another story. But he, he had this symbolic significance and I think brought to everybody's mind the, the idea that politics has got to be about atonement. I mean, I think Obama is partly responsible for this. And I think the Democratic Party will ultimately, ultimately, when they finally get rid of identity politics, will see that Obama was the person in whom this came to full fruition, and they're going to have to let go of Obama. Now, at the moment, they're not. Uh, they're looking for somebody who could step in. This is why I think Biden is very curious. So, so Biden is, yes, he's a white heterosexual, male, but he's, he's very weakened. He's infirm. His faculties are not all together. So he's not a threatening one. And of course, the way in which he's going to have to govern is he's going to have to, uh, as I say in the author's introduction, he's going to have to practice the daily Passover ritual. That is to say, he's going to have to demonstrate that, that he is not impure, that he is with the innocent. So he'll put the, the sign of the innocent blood of the lamb. And so he'll push forward on every agenda of the far left. He has to in order to gain cover from social death so that he himself is not scapegoated. Now, one last thing. The question that one has to beg and raise with respect to the Democratic Party is, can white people ultimately be the brokers? And, And the only way they can be the brokers, because they, of course, are visibly guilty, is that they have to genuflect to all of these identity politics movements. And so you get woke capitalism. The only way they can stay in power is if on a daily basis they show how woke they are. But the problem is, no matter how much they try to show how woke they are, they have visible signs of guilt, and eventually they're going to be purged. And this is the pathology of identity politics. And I do think that the only alternative in America is to recognize that transgression and stain, these are deep theological problems that have to be solved in our conscience and in the churches. And and when we recognize that that's where we belong, then we can actually do what the Reverend Martin Luther King wanted, which is for us to look at each other from the vantage point of the content of our character and build a world of competence. And, and my general argument here is that you cannot do that um, if you do not have the divine scapegoat as a solution. 
Because if you don't have the divine scapegoat as a solution to your cathartic rage, then you're going to have an imminent one. And you're not going to be able to see the content of your character. You're going to only see peoples who are possible objects of cathartic rage. One last thing. You, know, you mentioned that phrase that I wrote, you're a misogynist, a homophobic fascist, etc. This is part of the reason why I think it's a, it's a big mistake for conservatives to talk about cultural Marxism. Those terms did not exist during the Marxist moment of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. They did not exist because the task of, of Marxism is not cathartic rage and purging. It's a different, I mean, yes, there's the guilty ones, the, the, the 1%, the owners of production. Yes, that's true, but you'd never used cathartic language. And the proof that we're in this new moment of desperately searching for purity through cathartic rage against different groups is the fact that we have this whole list of, of categories, and they're all used interchangeably, fascist, misogynist. Trump was an authoritarian. That's another word which I didn't put in the book, but authoritarian is another one of these, these words. Uh, Islamophobe, homophobe. I mean, you get nailed with that, and, and that's over. You, have, you now endure social death forever. This suggests that we are, we're not in liberal politics anymore, and we have to return to liberal politics if we're going to build a world. On the bipolarity, if we, if we move into that, you, you pull one bipolarity out of way back in the 19th century when you talk about Tocqueville seeing democratic man as, quote, greater than kings and less than man. What is that condition? Let me just first say something about a unifying theme in, in the whole book. So yes, there are three things. It's identity politics, bipolarity, and addiction. But, but another way to look at this is I'm looking at relationships. All, in all three, it's a relationship. So the first is a relationship between people, identity politics. And my claim is that identity politics is not about different kinds of people. It's about the relationship between transgressors and innocents. And so your identity category is a relationship to the white heterosexual male. Um, bipolarity is a relationship between highs and lows. So the first, the first identity politics is concerned with relationships between persons. The second thing I talk about bipolarity is a relationship between highs and lows, moods. And the third one, very quickly, addiction. I, I work through both Plato and Rousseau's views on this. It's a relationship between supplements and substitutes. So really, the book is about a series of relationships which which had gone horribly straight. So I think now to the second one on bipolarity, so we can talk more precisely on that. Tocqueville, I think, has a psychology that supposes that human beings are, are naturally unstable and prone to oscillations between highs and lows. And I think everybody knows that he, he, um, he says we need to have these mediating institutions, the family, the churches, local associations. But I think what people miss is that these associations attenuate this bipolarity, not get rid of, but attenuate. So there's this male socialization problem. Males are, are mod moderated in the family. The churches moderate our souls from, from excess. And so Tocqueville thought that these mediating institutions were, were central for us, if we were going to find some moderate balance and not oscillate back and forth, between manic mania and depression. So that beautiful phrase, greater than kings and less than men, is one that he writes toward the end of the book where he's anticipating the future. And he's saying, uh, when you cut the links between people, as we do as we move from the aristocratic age to the democratic age, this, as it were, natural bipolarity emerges. And so if we produce a world where in, in the future, where we lose sight of our mediating institutions, lose sight of our churches, lose sight of our families more and more, we will have uh, a group of people who, who sense themselves to be greater than kings and less than men. And my view is that this is exactly the configuration that we see most evidently 
in what I call the post-1989 moment. And I do think we, there was a specific historic moment from 1989 to 2016, which was destroyed by Trump and various nationalist movements, Brexit around the world. And I think we're still in the, in the process of destroying it. But it's characterized by exactly the psychological phenomena that Tocqueville's talking about. Namely, that on our Facebook pages, I don't have Facebook, but on people's Facebook pages, they post all these selfies. And selfies are really, they're psychologically interesting because the world is the backdrop to you. And one can surmise that hundreds of millions of selfies are taken every single day around the world. And so you get the sense that the self is sovereign. The self is greater than kings, right? The whole world is a backdrop for me. And yet side of this is that when it comes to solving problems, we don't believe that we're even up to it. And so we hand it off to the global managers. So for example, uh, if we're going to solve the climate crisis, that Trump did not sign the Paris Accords means that we're, the whole world is doomed. Well, this is really, very strange. How is it possible that the self in one minute can see itself as greater than kings and at the next moment think that there's nothing we can do as individuals. We're less than men. And I think Tocqueville's view is this oscillation, this what I call globalization and identity politics. That was this 1989 to 2016 moment, which is still going on, but the height of it was then. This oscillation back and forth corresponds to dwelling in two, let's call them nodal places in the late democratic age, absolutely focused on yourself and feeling infinitely powerful, and then feeling oneself to be cut off, isolated, and alone, and, and therefore utterly impotent, which is why we have to have every problem solved by the global managers, the, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the, the United Nations. There's no such thing as national sovereignty. And of course, at the local level, we can do nothing. So this, is, this was the second problem that I saw. So even if we get rid of identity politics, we still have this oscillation back and forth uh, in the soul. And of course, Tocqueville thought the only way you can attenuate that is if you've got face-to-face -face relations. So we have extraordinarily high rate of drug taking, the young, of course, but everyone in America, because of these mood swings. And Tocqueville thought we don't have a brain chemistry problem. We have a problem of human association. That leads to final question as, as we wrap it up. Joshua, your formulation of addiction as uh, supplements becoming substitutes, give us a concrete example of one of the worst processes taking place. Facebook is, is the best one. I, I list eight or 10, and, and frankly, that would be a standalone book. I say there's everywhere we look, we're turning supplements into substitutes. So social media, well, look at the term, Facebook friends. And friendship is a really difficult thing. And I don't think there's a recipe for it. You have to go through it. You have to make terrible mistakes. You have to understand it in all of its depth. Uh, which takes time, and it's something that fits in with prudent. It's it's a, an aspect of prudential knowledge. It's something you can't give a recipe for, and it's really important for us to develop friendships if we're going to live well. Now, Facebook and social media can be a supplement to this, and we know this because when we have Zoom conferences with our family, or or Skype conferences with our friends, we have we have all these tacit references for who they are. And it's fantastic that we can talk to them in real time 5,000 miles away. That is really great. Nothing wrong with Facebook and social media being a supplement to the lived experience, to the analog experience. And in the press, there's nothing wrong with digital being a supplement to analog. Uh, and you'll see where I'm going with that in a minute. The problem, though, is that when Facebook friends don't become a supplement, but become a substitute for friendship. 
And that is happening in part because human beings are always looking for shortcuts. Friendships are really difficult. But if you've got a thousand Facebook friends, well, you're in great shape, right? So what we're doing here is we're, we're finding a shortcut. And of course, just as when you have vitamins for the meal, it, it will strengthen the meal you've had. But if you live on vitamins, you're going to get sick really quick. So too, we're seeing ample evidence through you know, depression and suicide of kids on, who are living on social media. There's something seriously wrong with turning something that could be a great supplement into a substitute. And the bigger picture, of course, is the relationship between digital and analog. And we're turning everything digital and trying to develop algorithms for the competence that only uh, analog life can really give us. And this is the great experiment of the 21st century. We're trying to, to live in a digital world, the whole movement towards transhumanism. Theoretically, this cannot work because the structure of knowledge itself always must start from tacit, dwelt-in analog knowledge. And you can have a supplement to it but when you turn the supplement into a substitute, your world comes crashing down. And I think that's where we're headed. The book is American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Thank you, Professor Mitchell. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 Three three two two nine three zero.